You can have anything you want in life if you allow yourself to believe that you can. Thank you for joining me on this first episode of Mindset Mastery. I developed a fascination with learning about mindset, neuroscience, and positive psychology a few years ago when I was looking for purpose in what I was doing. I've been fortunate enough to work with so many inspiring people as a result of being a videographer. And now I want to share their work and their stories and bring together a community who have a shared goal of becoming masters of our own minds. I am so grateful to have you here at the very beginning as we start our journey together. My first guest is social and emotional learning consultant and author of the book Empowered for Life, Jocelyn Chernside. I've had the pleasure of working with Jocelyn and following her journey over the last five years and helping her develop the video component of her flagship program, Bridge Builders. Jocelyn's business, Empowering Life Skills, works with principals and their communities to minimize the impact of disruptive student behavior, reduce bullying, and empower young people for life. In this episode, we are talking about good and bad stress, exercising our brain, the difference between bullying and conflict, and how we can reframe our thoughts to live happier and healthier lives. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for joining me on the very first episode of Mindset Mastery. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So I've had the privilege of working with you over, I think, about the last five years when you first started building your bridge building program and we started off with bringing that into the form of videos. I want to talk a little bit first about your background and how your Bridge Builders program came into life. So I'm originally a teacher um, and I have been working in the area of social emotional learning for 23 years and it was about about six years ago I noticed that there was a growing need in our community for students and, and young people to have skills to learn not just academic work but also learn how to cope with Um, struggles when things went wrong, how to deal with difficult people and relationships. And when when that was uh, mastered or understood and they had strategies, they were then able to be able to focus better in class, which obviously is the whole purpose of education, to learn better. Um, They experienced better well-being and they had less stress. Um, So we saw all these amazing outcomes. And unfortunately, I did not see a priority in education for that. It was sort of, I was an extra thing in the curriculum. I wasn't a uh, sort of um, focus in what the school programs were um, delivering. So with a lot of hesitation and fear, I stepped out of a permanent position in education and decided to venture into small business to see if there was a place for this to go further than one school. And um, and we've just been amazed at what's happened. Um, as you mentioned, we did start with videos and how we connected because we, we looked at the fact that this was important for young people, but we realised that very quickly it was also important for older people. And as educators, I realised uh, through a thesis and research study that we as teachers are trained in behaviour management and controlling behaviour, but we're not trained in conflict resolution, which is one of my big passions. And that therefore means we, we're controlling behaviour. When, when kids go out on their own, we're not actually empowering them with skills they need for life. So 
a lot of my work is though it looks like it's focused at children is really focused in how do we equip adults to deliver that because the old proverb of you know, it takes a village to raise a child means that the whole village needs to learn that so that was that was basically my um, professional reason for doing what I did with the bridge builders and I did as I mentioned thesis and research and collected data to show this this growing need but I also had a personal reason because the cost of doing something like this on your own is massive and I think you need a, a fire in your belly and a drive to to get you up every morning to do this and my personal reason is that I've got three a three grown-ups children now and, and I've seen two of the three really struggle in their uniqueness in um, sometimes being able to navigate their world through the filter of uh, mental health issues. I realise that our education system doesn't always equip and isn't catering for them and they were excellent academically but when they came out the other end they really struggled emotionally and um, one parent can't do it alone and you need the school and the parents working collaboratively. So when you see your own kids struggle and you see the cost of that, uh, I think it drives you. And I learnt a lot from my own mistakes and have gone on a, on a, a journey of learning what would work better and testing it and refining it and seeing progress through those. Wow, that's awesome. There's, there's a few things that, yeah, I want to talk about, unpack there. And you talked about how it is a whole community approach, like parents can't do it by themselves, nor can the teachers do it by themselves. Mm. It needs to be a whole community buy into that. So um, can you talk me through a little bit about how your program, how you aim for it to immerse the whole community? Mm. So we're focused on cultural change and so when you want to change or support positive change in a community it's it's not easy because first of all they have to identify that they have a need to change and sometimes we're brought in to fix things by principals or by teachers or even parents but the people you're trying to work with don't see the problem so in terms of working with um, change um, it starts I guess by giving information that becomes relevant and simple to implement without becoming taxing and stressful on already stressed people particularly in education so a big part of our starting point is working with decision makers in communities and recognize helping them to recognize not what it costs not to have these skills in their in their um, community that the costs are incredibly high on reputation, on stress, on resources, and actually the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. So that recognition, first of all, is important. And then we we found that working with key drivers in that community that um, we can empower makes a difference and equipping them with resources and knowledge and um, and backup support to help them to mentor those that particularly need it. We don't have one program to bring into a community to, to deliver cultural change. We see that because of the varied needs and uniqueness of members of a community, that we need a variety of different methods to empower those different unique individuals and needs. So we kind of have a... a um, a la carte menu for schools or and or communities and they pick and choose what 
they think is going to create the best change at that time for their community. And as and what we usually find is when that first element is introduced into the community before too long they want another part of that menu and then another part and before long immersion happens when basically uh, the whole community is is being touched and encouraged and influenced by the same skills the same language and same knowledge so that there's uh, this whole community of continuity a, a big challenge in this area which is focused on particularly conflict resolution and resilience is when You've got one person that could be a principal, it could be a deputy, or it could even be a parent or teacher who's saying to a child, you know, when you get into a difficult situation, you do A and B. And then they go to another person in the community and they say, no, you do C and D. And, uh, and then the child gets out there to the situation they can't remember because they're two different, you know, opposing things. So they just do E and they do what works for them. And often it's not helpful for them or the relationship. But if everybody's saying you do A and B, and they and you know, research has shown it takes about 30, 30 times the repetition for a skill to become automatic. If, if the parents are saying it, and the teachers are saying it, and the teachers and the principals are saying it, then that we hope becomes a consistent message of repetition and, and learn skills. Yeah, yeah. And it, there's no quick fix. We don't walk in with a wand or a switch. It it's an investment of time and and effort, you know, for, for really productive change. And a lot of what we bring in is a counterculture message. It's a the culture that we're that we're seeing emerge around us can be quite toxic for some people. It's a high fear and anxiety, you know, media, um, the internet drives us to have a level of anxiety and fear. It puts a lot of pressure on us, um, can affect our relationships, our sleeping habits, addictions, and all of those things contribute to the fact that um, we're doing, we get, we get swept up in behaviours and thinking that's not healthy. So what we're trying to bring in is a, a culture message. I think stress is such a big thing, especially now with you know so much exposure to the media and the internet. As you're saying, and when we are in a stressful environment, either at home, at school, at work, that just hinders us physically, mentally, and emotionally. As you're saying, when we are stressed, we're not going to get anything done. So how do we start to look at that, look at stress in schools and in the workplace and dealing with that so that we can be successful and be productive? Sure. Well, I'm going to um, agree and disagree with what you've said about stress because I agree stress is, is can be quite toxic and unhelpful. But there's a there's a new research that says that actually stress can be good for us. What the difference is, is how we perceive it and how we deal with it. So I, I'm a big contender to say that we need to manage our stress and see stress as our friend, not as our enemy, because if we see we all are carrying much more, I think, than perhaps our ancestors did in terms of juggling. But if we can um, shift our mindsets to see that, okay, stress is our trigger to recognise what it is that we need to manage better. And that um, not managing it, as you said, is toxic. So when we don't manage stress, we have this rush of cortisol and adrenaline in our bodies and, and that has long-term that can have quite a destructive effects. You know, the short term, it, it can kick us into action, but the long term, that mobilisation impact it has wears us down. It wears down our immune system. It wears down our digestive system. It stops our, our brains functioning effectively. So the prefrontal cortex 
isn't able to reason and process and um, we lose that creative impact we we should be you know sort of seeking to to have in it every day and um, and, and long term it can reduce um, our immunity leading to chronic illnesses so you know particularly in a in a world of COVID-19 where we're all trying to build immunity um, we do need to manage our stress well and there's there's quite a lot of research on the neuroscience of stress and how our our brains process it uh, in a way that initially is toxic so that um, we can switch into those really negative destructive toxic thinking such as you know oh my gosh i can't deal with this it's overwhelming you know i'm going to fail um, i'm not good enough all those negative thoughts that follow stressed emotion immediately but learning to actually tune in and listen to our thinking and recognize that you know we have over sometimes 60,000 thoughts a day and um, they've put up microbes on our brains and they can they've found that 80 percent of our thoughts are toxic which is pretty scary that's a lot that's a big one. it's huge <laughs> um and then 95 percent of those are the same thoughts we had yesterday so we have patterns of thinking which actually have emerged from a very early fundamental age, that, that formative age. And so I believe that if we want to deal with stress, we've got to really think about what is it that we're thinking about ourselves, um, the situation, what is it that we can manage, what is it that we can't manage. So actually unpacking our thinking and starting to reframe things into rather than I can't, it's too hard, to, to reframe it into things that what I can do I can do this or I you know I will statements and and even if you need to bounce those thoughts off someone else having someone else that you can unpack those really difficult thoughts with and be vulnerable to the other thing that's helpful with our stress is there's been quite a lot of research done of um, when we're overwhelmed going and doing an act of kindness and doing something good for someone else releases dopamine that makes us feel good and those endorphins and and uh, so what we're trying to do is counter the negative stress hormones and release the positive healthy hormones. So being kind releases good hormones and it stops you from being so focused on your problem. The other thing that can release the good hormones and reduce stress is when we just stop for a minute and think of the things that we're thankful for. And it's a bit of a discipline when we're overwhelmed. But um, just simple things like the sun shining today. Yesterday it was gloomy. It was really hard. <laughs> today I'm thankful the sun's out. And just little things like that just actually start to change our pattern of thinking from negative, which is toxic, and it's positive and helpful. And, and the other thing that is really um, important in stress is um, exercise. So I try to do a minimum of 15 minutes, which is really achievable. My goal is an hour but that's not as achievable um, but just to do 15 minutes of movement to get away from the computer get off the sofa that releases again dopamine that makes us feel good and the last thing that when I'm stressed I, I don't know if you're the same as this and other people are the same but I have a tendency to reach for sugar <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah so show me the chocolate so we tend to um, when we're not coping well we can consume things that help us to cope better and it could be sugar it could be carbs it could be alcohol anything that actually helps us to have a quick pickup and they're not good coping mechanisms they actually contribute further to 
the stress. So good nutrition and healthy eating habits is also really important in managing that stress well and, and seeing yourself through that time. Yeah, I think a lot of us, especially if we have lots of work to do, lots of deadlines, we get into that habit of, you know, I don't have time to exercise. I'll just grab a pick me up that isn't, it is sugar and it's not something that's good. So, you know, we need to have that discipline to start breaking those bad habits before it turns into a negative and a toxic cycle. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I find that the other thing that stress impacts is our sleep patterns. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a cycle, you know, I can't sleep because I'm stressed and I can't, I'm so stressed because I can't sleep. And so, you know, I, I'm not a particularly good sleeper at the best of times. And so I've learned to, um, again, change my thinking about it. So when I'm awake for hours and hours, um, I've chosen not to stress about it, just to try, you know, just mindfulness, counting. I'm a big podcast listener <laughs> um, like yourself. And I just love just listening to things that, you know, at least if, if I'm resting my body, it's something good going into my mind. And so there's a lot of uh, talk about good sleep hygiene, making sure that, you know, we don't have lights and um, too much stimulation um, going through at that time. So people's sleep patterns are different, but I think it's good to find something that gives you enough energy for the day so that you're not overwhelmed, first of all, by fatigue in, in the stresses of life. Yeah. And I think with sleep is that, you know, we think, oh, well, if I power through, I'll feel better once I've finished everything I need to do. But it's more important sometimes at those times to rest our body and rest our mind because otherwise we see mistakes or we're not at our peak productivity. And then you have to go back later and redo things because your body is not functioning at its, at its highest potential. I love that uh, the Europeans and some of the Europeans and the Mexicans have these uh, siestas in the afternoon. Um, power naps, I think, are so good if you're able to put your head down for, you know, 20 minutes and just get that refresher and then plough on. But it's a lot of stress is learning where our boundaries are and not trying to push through those boundaries but um, recognise that that's your body saying shift, change, do something different because this is actually exhausting and over overburdening the system. And sometimes in our work situations, we don't always have the luxury of being able to make that shift. And that's why we have to be careful then that we don't develop habits that help us to cope with those shifts, required shifts in unhealthy ways. So, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about the idea that our brain is a muscle and mm-hmm. the more that we exercise it in positive ways, like the easier it's going to be. I think just the same as if we have lots of negative habits they become more reinforced um, in our everyday lives what are your thoughts on that with um yep. growing our positive thought pathways well i do love the metaphor of the brain being like a muscle because anatomically it's not a muscle it's um it's actually made up of uh, quite a lot of fat <laughs> it's the fattiest organ in the body but um yeah it's as a, a muscle I, I think of that as the fact that it's commit we need to commit to exercising it to help the, it to function and be stronger and when our brain is healthy all of our organs in our body are going to function better and our well-being is going to be improved so when i think about our brain being like a, a muscle i think that some of those things i talked about with the stress um, 
reduction needs to be part of our everyday well-being you know our brain is going to be exercised when we do things like um, learning a new uh, skill engaging in conversations is is a great stimulation for the muscle and exercise for the muscle um, being creative thinking positive thoughts so that you know just mentioned a bit of that but that difference between a growth mindset thought that helps your brain to think um, differently and see problems as an opportunity compared to a fixed mindset thought which sees things in black and white and tends to be uh, I'm either a success or a failure and I can't fail because then I've lost and that kind of thinking shrinks the brain's um, strength and function and doesn't allow it to grow in the same way as a growth mindset might so I think you know anything that gives new connections to the the muscles of the brain is a metaphor is is helpful so those learning new things problem solvings reading books all of those are, are great ways to to practice that muscle growth of the brain in terms of it you know i look at it in in relationships because that's my area of um, passion and i think that when we're trying to build that muscle it's not being afraid to make a mistake and that in fact our best learning is in our mistakes and being vulnerable enough to be open to um, people and say I'm sorry um, I didn't quite get that right and when we can we can be open in relationships like that our, we don't need to shield ourselves and we don't build shame and fear that also restricts us from being able to achieve our best in our brain, in our thinking, in our processing of information. I love Brené Brown's work who has so much focus and emphasis on the impact of shame, which shuts our, our thinking and creativity down and our sense of connection down. So when the brain is, is at its best, I think we've got these amazing creative connections that we can use both in output of work but also in our relationships and dealing with the challenges that life brings. Mm. That's a really important point you made about failure because I think a lot of us are terrified of failing and we'll go above and beyond to avoid failing and essentially stay within our comfort zone because it is viewed as, as in schools and in the workplace as the end of the world sometimes but how can we change our view of failure. I know there's an acronym that in FAIL, the F-A-I-L could be first attempts in learning rather than it being a negative thing. How can we shift our idea of failure to something that's more positive? Well, I've got a quote here from Dr. Lara Boyd who says, increased struggle leads to greater learning and increased structural change in the brain. So increased struggle of failure actually changes our brain and helps our brain to, to, to we get smarter so i i think one of the, the great teachers of this concept of how do you deal with mistakes and failure is um, dr carol dweck who wrote a book on mindset and she talks about how um failure is is good and to see failure as a a concept of i have i'm not there yet but I'm on a journey of getting there. So I mightn't be able to do this task yet, but give me time and I can. Or I mightn't be able to solve this problem with someone yet, but I'm going to keep working on it. And so what it says is that um, 
you know, that we don't have to be perfect. And if we strive for perfection, we're always going to experience this war we'll eventually get to because unfortunately none of us are perfect all the time. And that then breeds shame because we're not, we, we haven't read those goals. I, I often say to students when I'm talking to them that Thomas Edison failed over 2,000 times before he created the light globe. And if he decided to give up on that 1999th time, um, we may not have light as we know it today, but I guess the message behind that is that um, he persisted through failure and continued to learn to success. Mm. And none of us like to fail. It's, it's much more rewarding to succeed. But if we can shift our thinking to say um, it's okay and, and part of that failure is actually being okay in your own skin mm -hmm. and it may be pulling down some of the mindsets that we've developed even as very young children when we've made a mistake and we've been um, chastised and embarrassed and shamed by it, we grow up with a fear that we've always got to get things right. I believe that it's often difficult to see and recognise those very deep-seated childhood thoughts that frame and build foundations to us as adults. But when we can identify them and even this time that it occurred and recognise now with way we can see it that actually that's not a good, healthy thought and processing way of processing myself, I need to shift that. It, it's not a it's not an instant change we can't change and undo years and years and years of wrongful thinking but it's recognizing that okay that is unhelpful to me it's um it's not a good thought to have a gut failure or mistakes I made I sometimes put it up on my my mirror put on post-it notes put it on my screen saver, you know, I just, if I need to reframe it, um, I've got one that says I won't give up because I have so much work and sometimes it's overwhelming and I feel like I'm never going to get there and I'll fail. But that, con that, that phrase in front of me, I won't give up, is a constant reminder that it's okay that I'm not there yet, I'm just going to keep persevering until I do get there. So mistakes, mistakes can be huge and valuable learning tools if we perceive them in the right way we keep going back to that mindset <laughs> absolutely yep it's so powerful just that constant reframing into you know how can we learn from this and then move forward from this that's so powerful um, I want to circle back slightly and just talk about you mentioned at the very start about the difference between conflict resolution and um, working through dealing with bullying can you tell me a little bit more about the difference um, and the key things that separate those two concepts so the area that I predominantly work in is conflict and I'm passionate about conflict but often people want to talk about bullying before conflict and um, I started bringing bullying programs in, into communities um, to anti-bullying programs and um, found that what happens is that our society is very um, uh, motivated by dealing with bullying and so therefore there's this heightened interest in it and when people deal with bullying it's very emotive and if you talk about bullying bring bullying into any community as a skill-based um, response to those relationships what happens is every second person talks about themselves being bullied when in fact it's not why we're so passionate about conflict resolution is because conflict happens to everybody 
It's a normal part of life. In fact, if you haven't had a conflict this week, it's probably really unusual. Lucky you, but it's not common. Uh, most of us have had some level of it and um, it's sometimes a small disagreement about who's going to do what or it could be a big blowout because there's been this massive misunderstanding and someone's done something wrong. But conflict is a normal part of life and we can all be empowered to deal with conflict. It happens because sometimes there's different perceptions, there's different values, uh, different um, cultures and um, ways of looking at things. That's normal. But in what happens is that conflict gets mixed up with bullying. And if you, if you call uh, a conflict a bullying situation, it really changes the way it's dealt with and the way that it uses power. There are three key issues that separate bullying from conflict and according to research they align to things like intent so um, often conflict can be accidental or misunderstanding or even a difference in perception but bullying generally has an intent to harm um, it's just a deliberate um, decision in that behavior the second thing and the most commonly known um, uh, key indicator of bullying is that um, there's a repetition to the behaviour. So we talk about that being repeated conflict and in many situations people have a difference of understanding about what even that means. You know, some people think repetition is when it happens twice. Other people might be saying, oh, well, it's got to happen at least 10 times for it to be repetition. In, in the experience that I've had working with adults and students, we tend to align it with five or six repetition. So that moves beyond an accident, a misunderstanding, a perception. It's starting to become deliberate and with intent and there's a history developing in it. And the third indicator, which is probably the most significant difference between conflict and bullying, revolves around power and how power is used, abused or given away. And so in bullying, there are often more than just um, a perpetrator and a target. There's often bystanders or um, management or elders and uh, adults involved in, in also the um, situation. So there's a culture and that becomes part of what we need to focus on as well is the individual in, in bullying. You may not always be able to be empowered to deal with it because it's not just between you and the perpetrator. And even if it is, there's a power difference. So that's how we deem it differently and why we focus on conflict because we believe very strongly that um, because conflict relates to everybody, if we, if we know how to manage and resolve conflict well, then it doesn't become repeated to become bullying. So therefore, indirectly, you reduce the impact of bullying and people have strategies then to know how to, to respond to it better. How can bystanders help? What can they do about it to, say, help the person being bullied to have power to stand up to the bully or get help or things like that? Well, after the influence of the authority in the culture, so in terms of the boss or the principal or the teacher i think the most powerful group so they have the most power but the most powerful group after them are the bystanders and the difficulty is that bullying often doesn't happen with that high authority group in the in around so you know in workplaces colleagues often don't bully when the boss is in the room or in the classroom kids don't bully each other when there's a teacher in the room so that high authority is often not there but they have the greatest influence and power and um, but bystanders 
are around bullying far more than any other, um, you know, sort of management person. Bystanders have the ability 86% of the time to stop bullying in less than 10 seconds. So they're incredibly powerful. What has been my observation in the 23 years that I've worked in different communities um, is that very rarely are adults or their students trained in teaching how bystanders can effectively intervene though because they only reduce bullying if they know effective means of which to do it and many times I see and hear bystanders encouraged to actually become like the bully this whole idea of standing up and stopping bullying I see kids that stand up put their hands in front of kids and you know basically turn on the bully and become the bully themselves and so I I think that kids and adults in all situations where bullying is experienced need to understand that, first of all, you don't put yourself at risk. If there's somebody who's choosing to demean and hurt another person, you need to be aware that self-preservation is important as well. So you need to weigh up your relationship with the person who's choosing the bully to determine how you influence that situation. So there's, you can choose minor strategies to support um, the bystander, which don't put you in the face of danger, or you can become much more proactive and do things that are more effective. And as basic as it says, as we're all told to ask the perpetrator to stop, again, sometimes what can happen is the bystanders turn that request to stop into a demeaning comment to the, the bully, or they turn it into a threat, you know, you better stop or I'm going to take this further or, you know, stop being an idiot, you know, that's and, and they start to use that sort of def, uh, attacking language that only escalates the problem rather than de-escalates the problem. So to say something rather, you know, to say, hey, listen, give it a rest, that's not cool, leave them alone, they haven't done anything to upset you um, or, you know, just, just change the subject, you know, distract them and say something like, hey, do you know when we've got to get that project in? Um, has anyone known? And just sort of see if you can um, deflect what the target's, you know, experiencing can be, make a difference. So for me personally, I feel like bystanders need to be equipped with strategies and also consider how to keep themselves safe and how to, to make a difference to reduce the power difference. So bystanders actually have the ability to bring balance of power back in, to defuse the power of the perpetrator and to increase the power of the target. And that's that's huge. That's really important. Yeah. And just on that, I think the language that we use is so powerful as well. And it's not something that we're often taught how to talk to other people in a conflict situation, especially from a young age. Mm. So we talk a little bit about how important language is and learning the right words to say in situations can affect our relationships and our connections. Yeah. So I'm a bit pedantic about words. I think words are so powerful. They're probably one of the most powerful tools that every person has is language. Mm. And yet rarely are we given a framework to use to bring about well-being in ourselves and how we speak about ourselves to ourselves and also how we diffuse and communicate effectively with others around us 
and understanding the power of those words. So when we are working in the Bridge Builders program, one of the key things that we teach is a framework of language that gives um, young people and indirectly adults as well, uh, language that empowers the speaker and creates basically a bridge of communication to help express their personal needs and feelings and also to identify cl with clarity what their needs are. And that is, I believe, you know, creating this situation of understanding and clarity in relationships. So words in relationships, I talk about they either help or harm or hurt or heal or um, empower or disempower or they contribute or they contaminate. And I have a belief that adults are the role models for children to um, and how they speak. And so what they what parents speak over children um, becomes their thoughts and becomes their words. And what they teach children to, the language they teach children to use in conflict becomes powerful in whether those conflicts are quickly fixed and they can move on and do more fun things and creative things or whether they escalate and they become, they experience more disconnection, separation, stress and um, loneliness because of it and, and even anxiety as a result of those broken relationships. So, yeah, I think, um, I think words are extremely, uh, and, and it takes practice to get the right language, especially in the heat of the moment. And, and it goes back to that mindfulness first you know thinking through am i calm have i de-stressed what am i thinking in my mind am i am i thinking helpful thoughts to be able to to communicate because you cannot speak positive words if you're thinking toxic thoughts our our thoughts will follow our thinking and our emotions so when we talk about changing behavior we see it like an equation and thinking and feeling precedes the answer which is behavior so getting that right is so important. That's why in, in the heat of the moment, if we're having an argument and we're not calm with a friend, a coworker, a partner, we can say things that, you know, might not necessarily mean, but then it's said and you can't always take it back. So yeah, just that point of controlling your own emotions and calming down and diffusing yourself first is such a, a big point. And you also spoke about the words that we say to ourselves, not just to other people. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it's going back to the, was it 80% of negative thoughts that we have mm -hmm. and just looking at the way that we talk to ourselves before we even look at the way that we talk to other people. Yeah, I, I, and I find... Even for myself, you know, I've, I've studied perceptions of conflict and looking deeply into understanding thinking and I, I spend most of my time looking at how we help and support change of thinking. And I still have to have checks on myself about this. It's a, it's a, a trap we all fall into. And so some of the strategies that help me is I, I've got a, a mentor of 20, 29 years now who when I, I recognise the triggers in myself you know, when I do go for that sugar or I do feel like I can't get out for exercise, it's all too hard or, you know, I, I find myself being overwhelmed with negative thoughts, I give her a call and I talk to her about what I'm thinking and she's an accountable person to me and I think we all sort of need that honest friend 
who we can say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And they're, they're able to say, actually, you know what? You, you, you're going down the wrong path. You know, this is, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and they're able to, to pull you up without you taking offence. And they're able to reframe your thinking. So they need to be a person that you trust and also someone that, that doesn't add fuel to the fire of negativity and that you know can help you to move forward in the direction that you think has value. So that, that those people are, are hard to find, but when you find them, you know you've got um, an amazing resource to support you. I also um, do journal. When I get really overwhelmed, I um, write out the challenges that I'm experiencing, and sometimes it's a letter. So I write like a letter and I go through this process. Sometimes it's just getting down my thoughts and it's a journey. So I'll write down, I might start with the problem and then I try to see it from the other person's perspective and then I try to think of how, what have I learnt from this experience. And I know when I can get to the position of seeing the other person's perspective, that's when I've grown from being the victim in negativity and being overwhelmed to becoming um, the vida so that you know I've I've learned from this experience and therefore I've grown from it so I don't have to fear it I don't have to worry about it I've actually seen it as an opportunity mm. Mm. that's um, another thing is owning our own feelings and emotions mm. and having that power over ourselves so that you know, another person can't make us feel something because we own that can we talk about the language in in ourselves about if someone has upset us owning that feeling so that we can process that and move on from that in the relationship. So feelings is a, a really interesting um, question to bring up because I think in our society we put a lot of emphasis on trying on feelings, on making sure that you know if I'm if I don't feel well if I don't I don't feel happy if I feel stressed if I feel anxious then my whole world is a problem you know and I think that we have to be really careful with our feelings because our feelings have a bit of an autonomous automatic response in us and they can run out of control and if we don't learn to manage them they can start to control us and that's not a good life because you can become overwhelmed with anxiety in this type of world with all the things happening in it and your, your world becomes smaller because of those feelings. So I think that feelings are a warning sign that something's not right. So when we start to feel anxious or angry or concerned about uh, or fearful about something, that's a, that's a trigger to say, hang on, stop. What am I thinking? Why am I feeling this way? It's okay. I think it's also good to validate those feelings. We shouldn't feel ashamed or upset with ourselves that we suddenly feel angry about something that um that's you know that's a legitimate feeling and it's okay and i need to just be in that moment of okay i'm angry at the moment um you know if you're talking about before about dealing with problems with partners when we're upset and the words we might say well sometimes the timing is important because i you know you might just need some time out just to just to process and get rid of that feeling that is overwhelming you. And once you've moved through that, then um, you're able to cope with it. So I think that feelings are, are very important to recognise. So one of the things we do is we look at grouping feelings, like red feelings that where you get stuck, you're overwhelmed, um, you're depressed. Then you've got other feelings, which is um, worried, um, a bit anxious, 
unsure and then you might have green thought feelings like um, things like you're happy excited focused achieving and and just sort of recognizing that through the day you're going to move from red to green to orange and amber and 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 just you know sometimes just to chart where you're at and what are the triggers that trigger those feelings so that you start to then control those feelings and you're aware of okay so if, if i if i go for a run in the morning i'm going to have um, the more the green feelings um therefore hey that i can do that or if i uh, have a conversation with somebody that is difficult that i have to face I come out of that feeling a red feeling really frustrated i need to perhaps have a plan post that meeting to help me to feel better so that might be when i go outside and i might go out and get some fresh air and you know go and do something enjoyable for a few minutes just to help me deal with that and recognize that that's the roller coaster of, a, of, a, of being human all those emotions and feelings Mm, absolutely. Um, I think another thing that a lot of us do is if we're feeling upset or stressed for whatever reason, we build up stories in our head about why it's worse or um, why this might be you know, the reason behind this. And it's got nothing to do with it at all. And so just always like coming back and checking, um, checking in with ourselves and with the people involved before we jump to those kind of conclusions. It's another thing, yeah. So true, yeah, absolutely. It's a lifelong journey, always coming back to our thoughts and our mindset, and it's not going to be a quick fix. Um, mm. And it's something that, yeah, we need to, to work on pretty much every single day. So just finally, just to recap some of those things that we um, want to have in place, you spoke about having a mentor, having um, mm. that accountability outside of yourself. Mm and journaling as well um, and just having a check-in. So are there any other strategies that you use yourself um, during the week if you're feeling overwhelmed with work that you'll come back to? So definitely exercise is important as well and trying to get a variety. Uh, touching base with friends, so connecting socially. I'm very work-focused, so I could work um, non-stop, but it then drains me. So socialising puts back into me as an extrovert. So not everybody's like that, but that's certainly me. I think just also giving myself permission to do some down things. So just, you know, watch Netflix now and again, veg out, that's garden, those things, those hobbies that actually are not work. Nature is a really good thing as well, that there's something about getting out to vitamin D, and I'm just being out in uh, trying to walk around the trees or the bush. I make a deliberate effort to do that. And um, sometimes it seems incredible, but um, just being around animals. And when I'm walking, I often see birds as turtles and all that sort of thing. And I just think that, you know, if you've got a pet, they contribute to our mental health and well-being in a very subtle way that's positive. And um, I don't know whether it's because their life looks simpler, but <laughs> just they're, they're the little things. And I'm, I'm a lover of music and music de-stresses me as well. So everybody's different and has these different, you know, tools that help them to download. But they're, they're the main things that um, I found that helps the mental health and well-being of de-stressing and keeping that muscle, my brain muscle, uh, healthy and fit. <laughs> yes, awesome. And I think 
connecting with people like our relationships are so important as well and it's been difficult during this time of covid when we haven't been able to um, visit people in person but just tell me what exactly is it about relationships and having happy healthy relationships that contributes so much to our mental health I think we're designed to be connected as human beings. We're not designed to be isolated. <laughs> and even um, there's been research that said that, you know, people sometimes connect online by video calls and things like that. And they've shown evidence that that kind of connection is better than no face-to-face connection, but it's not the same as face-to-face connection. They've done experiments with babies that when a baby hears another baby cry nearby, um, they actually start to cry themselves because there's an inbuilt empathy in us. When a baby hears a recording of another baby cry, it doesn't have that same influence over them. So that research actually shows that we are that emotions are contagious and we empathise with those that are around us and that connection it builds, it builds value inside us. We have this uh, Maslow's theory talks about this basic need to belong and feel loved. And I think that when we're connected to one another, we feel that we're communicating in healthy ways, we're able to resolve the challenges we have, that it builds confidence within us. It builds that sense of I'm okay, I have value, I belong. And we can move up Maslow's theory and actually feel that we have greater purpose. So... It's fundamental in my mind to every part of our well-being and our success in life and yet ironically it's not something that many of us have been explicitly trained and taught in and in in what I believe is important too is that it's taught simply it's not some academic highfalutin you know PhD type idea of how to do it it's just a b c you know this is how you stand this is the tone you have this is the words that can help and everyone can do it whether it's a, a three-year-old or a 103 year old that we're all capable of connecting effectively we've just adapted to learn some habits in our in our society and in our globe in our world that are quite toxic and you know it's a little bit of a tangent Rachel but I was listening to a podcast this morning from a neuroscience uh, scientist who's talking about the fact that social media is really unhealthy for our connections and, and mindsets because what happens is that the al- algorithms that are built into uh, social media will continue to feed things that we click on and what we tend to click on are the things that uh, shock us or cause us to be fearful. So any news that we pick up on Facebook or social medias or online that we go, oh, my gosh, uh, we will click further. And the algorithms and any of those social media platforms uh, are successful on the increased numbers of hits that they get. So what they're driving you to do is keep clicking, keep clicking, keep clicking, whether it's YouTube or whatever. And so what what they do is um, a lot of news, for example, is feeding the bleeding, so to speak. And they, they feed that sense of, you know, oh, my gosh, look at this bad news, look at this bad news. And, and it's particularly relevant in today's climate where we've got this whole fear about COVID-19 and about pandemics globally and what, what's going to happen with China and all these sorts of things are being fed into us and people click, click, click on these. And in the end, every time we feed into those, we create a stress 
the stress hormones are released and it sets us, our body up for mobilization and a long-term sense and and when we that cortisol is released it can take up to half an hour to dissipate through our body you click on enough things and you can start to become quite filled with the toxic cortisol and this has long-term impacts it, it, it heightens our anxiety it heightens our stresses and our brain gets fixed into these things that um, people are with with us or against us and so the social media feeds this fuel of who's against you and who is with you and it creates disconnection. Mm. It creates a culture that says you're either with me and I, I'm your friend or you're against me and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And you don't have to think very far in terms of what's on the news to, to think about the language, the reactions globally of our leaders and the conversations that are being had to understand that we're in a culture that creates disunity rather than creates unity we're not we're not attracted to the good news as much as we're attracted to the sensational news Mm. Um, so it's a discipline what we put into our brains as well that will affect our thinking and our stress and therefore how we connect with one another so to be healthy, you kind of have to be counterculture. I think it's a little bit ironic how all these platforms that are designed to bring us together can also cause so much disconnection at the same time. That's right. It's like anything, isn't it? It's, it's got a lot of strength for good, but it also has uh, <laughs> the influence of bad as well. Absolutely. Jocelyn, I could talk to you all day about this easily, but I want to thank you so much for joining me on this very first episode as we all go on our journey towards Mindset Mastery. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Mindset Mastery. I've been having conversations with Jocelyn for the last five years and I still learned so much from this interview and I hope you have too. It goes to show there is always something new to learn if we ask the right questions. To find out more about Jocelyn's work, head to empoweringlifeskills.com.au. You can also find a link in the show notes to her website and to her book, Empowered for Life. If you enjoyed the episode, please give it a big thumbs up and leave a review so it can be found by more people like you who are ready to start the journey towards mindset mastery. Remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited.